Okay, welcome to another edition of the Broadcast Journal. We're coming to you from the Prudential Center here in Newark, New Jersey. My guest, who just called the Rangers versus the Devils game, WEPN's Don LaGreca. How are you doing, Don? Good, how are you? I'm doing good. So, let's talk about that game. It was a real exciting back-and-forth game. The Rangers won it in overtime. Uh, what are your assessments of the game? Well, there were some things that the Rangers have to clean up. You don't want to blow a, a 2 nothing lead the way that they did, and certainly the way they started the third period wasn't very good, but... They've always had the ability to bounce back. That's the great thing about this team, that when they make mistakes, they correct them. When they when they lose a game, they win the next one, usually. Uh, when Mika Zibanejad allows a breakaway the way he did uh, with the play from Palmieri, he's the one that scores the goal. That, I mean, that's what's, what's really great about following this team is they don't let things fester. When they make mistakes, they find a way to correct them. And you don't mind giving the Devils the extra point because you're not really battling with uh, playoff position with them. There's 20 points separation, now 21 points after today. So uh, I think you got to be pretty happy with the performance. They play exciting hockey, and we'll see how they do the final 21 games of the season. Now, you, um, now it's no secret that you grew up a Devils fan growing up. Uh, well, how do you remember this rivalry growing up when you first became a hockey fan? Well, you remember when I first became a hockey fan as very lopsided. I mean, uh, the Devils had their moment in 88 when they went to the conference final and actually beat out the Rangers to make the playoffs that year. But really after that, it was not just the dominance of their fan base, but also they were playing more meaningful games. And, and yet the Devils had their chance in 94 to kind of steal the thunder, and then they lost that 94 conference final, and then the Rangers were able to slay the Dragon. And then the Devils took over, you know, and, and the Devils were much better, and the Rangers... Um, beat them again in 97. So there was a feeling of that the Devils really didn't have their moment. Like they, they won their cups, but they didn't seem to come at the expense of the Rangers, where when the Rangers made runs, it came to the expense of the Devils, 94, 97. And that didn't turn until 2012 when the Rangers finally lost to the Devils in that conference final series where, you know, you really felt like, hey, we made it to the Stanley Cup final, and it was because we stepped on the Rangers to do it. But it's been a fun rivalry. It's kind of died recently because of the fact that the Devils haven't been very good. But there were times where you really got the blood flowing when you were playing the Rangers. And uh, was there any like, particular player group um, was your favorite when you were um, a Devils fan? Well, it's funny. Um, you probably never even heard of the player. His name was Jim Corn. Uh, he was a, a bruiser that, that went to Providence College, and Lou Lamarolo used to be at Providence, and he took a chance on Jim, and Jim had played in the league for a while, and he was kind of a goon, but I just liked him. So I was in college, and I, for a project for school, I needed to interview someone, so I went to the Devils' practice to interview Jim Corn, my favorite player. So I see him at practice over in, um, what was that, South Orange, and he said, you got to go. we got something at the Winners Club at the Meadowlands, so meet me over there. I met him over there, and he walked right by me. And I'm like, I can't believe Jim Cornival people blew me off. <laughs> that was when I was really early in my life, and then Ken Danico became the guy that I really loved, the longtime devil, played here for 20 years, and um, scored that, uh, that big goal in 2000 against Dallas and had his number eventually retired, and I've become friends with him afterwards. But... Jim Corn to start, and then Ken Danico was the guy that I really fell in love with. So you officially got your start in the radio business by um, something called Sports Phone, right? Yeah, correct. Uh, talk to you, uh, talk to the viewers about that. Not many people might not know what. Uh, sports a lot of phone people is. don't. I mean, especially if you're probably under the age of thirty, you're not going to believe. Like you're used to getting your scores from your phone, but not calling somewhere to get the scores. You had to call 976-1313 to get the scores. I recorded every 10 minutes the scores. 
and then you'd call up 976-1313 to get the scores. And in the late 80s, early 90s, for me, that was the way you got the scores. We'd be out of bar someplace, game's not on TV, what's the Yankees score, what's the Rangers score, what's the Knicks score, go to the pay phone and call. And that was a great way to get started. Um, it helped me do updates every 10 minutes to get the residents in my voice. Um, a lot of people worked there. Howie Rose, Ken, uh, Michael Kay, uh, Bob Papa, um, uh, Al Troutwig. I mean, some of the biggest names in sports started out at Sports Phone. It was like working at a small market radio station but not having to leave New York. So it's a, it, people can't figure out that there was a time where you had to call a phone number to get a score. But, you know, it started in the 70s. I started there in the early 90s. But... It existed and made a lot of money for a long time before beepers and the bottom line at ESPN and, of course, computers came. Now, I remember there's, um, I watched the Michael K. show um, a few months back. You talked about how you and Jerry Rico had a uh, TV show. You bought time, uh, bought time at a radio station back in the 90s just to get better at um, radio station. Talk about your memories of doing that. Oh, it was Red Bank, New Jersey. Um, we both split time because... Uh, how do you how do you get? You know, this is like before the internet, where you can kind of do shows like what you're doing, podcasts. So you got to buy time, and we bought a time at Red Bank. He lived um, in Hazlitt, New Jersey, at the time. I was up north, but we both worked overnights at the Fan. So we get off at six o'clock in the morning. We drive to Red Bank. We do a show for a couple of hours, get it on tape, and then I'd be able to give it to Mark Chernoff, the program director, distribute it around, trying to find a job. And he was fun. He was a Cowboy fan, more of a basketball guy. I was a Giant fan, more of a hockey guy. And we had a lot of fun doing that. But it was a, it was a great experience um, to make that transformation from update guy to host. Now, you said you worked at the fan, right? That was your real... Yeah, from, from 96 to 2001. So what did you do at the fan mostly? Uh, updates, mostly. I started out doing updates on the uh, overnights on the weekend. Then I moved to overnights during the week. And then I started gradually filling in during the day and during the nighttime hours. And then towards the tail end, I started filling and hosting shows. But for five years, I was primarily an update guy. What are your fondest memories of your time working at WFAN? Just the people. I mean, there were so many good people that I worked with. Kyle Casey, Chris Carlin, Jerry Recco. Joe Benigno gave me a great opportunity. You know, following the Devils. When I was working at the fan, you know, he'd have me come on after games, and I remember, you know, driving around and finding a payphone and calling his show and, and talking to him about, you know, the Devil, you know, da- Dallas Stanley Cup final or the Devil Avalanche Stanley Cup final back in the day, uh, getting to work with Mike and Chris, getting to work with Steve Summers. You got to realize that the fan was was the big leagues to me. I mean, that was the first ever sports radio station. So when they came out in 87, nine years later for me to start working there was like I got called up to the big leagues. So uh, I just love the whole experience there. And like any place, the people that you work with make it fun. And then when um, when um, WBN started, uh, you you got you got a chance to go there. And when did you when did you find out first that WBN was going to be a reality? And then when did you, when did you find out in terms of how I contact somebody in terms of getting a job there? Well, for the, my last couple of years of the fan, there were rumors that ESPN was coming to town with a station. So a lot of us that didn't have full-time work there were anxious to get an opportunity to work there. So while I was at the fan, I was also doing updates through shadow traffic, doing sports updates for 1010 Wins and CBS under an assumed name. I was, I was David Andrews, <laughs> so people wouldn't get confused between my FAN work and 
my work in wins. And the person that got me that opportunity was Steve Molesberg, who at the time was working at ABC. And when ESPN came to being, they were out of the ABC studios, obviously all Disney-owned, and Molesberg was the only sports guy, so he said, do you know anybody that would want to do updates or work at this new venture we're doing? And he recommended me. So in September of 2001, I got hired as a full-time update guy and part-time host at ESPN. So um, what you do before, so what were you doing before the Michael K. Show in terms of WPN? Everything. I was doing updates during the day. We were mostly network when we first started, so I was doing like local updates. Um, I would do some shows on the weekends, Saturdays and Sundays. Um, did, did some shows with Michael and with Wally Matthews and Tom Keegan, so it was kind of a jack-of-all-trades. And then on July fifteenth, two 2002, uh, they put... Michael and I together on a show that was 10 to 1 at ESPN and then in 2005 we moved to afternoon so that's when my connection with Michael really began full time was uh, in the summer of 2002 I was going to ask you that um, so when you guys first started your show um, how would you say how would you assess the show when it was, when you first well the show was all Michael I mean we I was the update guy I mean so that kind of uh, the relationship kind of blossomed from there um, like a funny story, when we, Michael and I first started connecting together um, was before they made the show official, they had us work together a little bit earlier on of that baseball season, that 2002 baseball season. And I remember they told Michael that while you're at Yankee Stadium, uh, Don LeGrec is going to be at the back of the studio. He's only there in case your line drops, so uh, don't worry about having to talk to him. They told me, you're going to get a chance to host with Michael K. So the first day, he doesn't talk to me at all. So I'm like, what a jerk. This guy's not talking to me. I'm supposed to be co-hosting with him. Second day, he says, one thing he says to me, he says, so I heard you're a hockey fan. I said, yeah. He says, well, I put harness racing above hockey. I'm like, okay. And then the third day, he asked me to critique the Bobby Knight story that was on ESPN at the time. So I'm like, what a jerk. I've worked three days with him. He's barely talking to me. And then we've laugh about it afterwards because it was just a lack of communication between the organization and Michael. But So we didn't get off on the greatest of foot, footing, but once we started working together officially on July 15th, gradually he'd bring me in on different subjects, and then over time it matured into like a co-host. So uh, there was never ever, uh, I think, an official, you are now the co-host of the Michael K. Show. It kind of grew from there. That's why I give Michael credit. He didn't let his ego get in the way. He allowed me to grow on that show to what it is today. And when did you um, when did you feel, feel like the show was taking off? Well, I, I I always felt the show was growing. It's tough when you're going up against Mike and Chris. They're an institution. Um, I thought Chris leaving left the door open a little bit, but I really felt that the show really became big once we started to get simulcasted on Yes. It almost seemed like that rite of passage where we took over for Francesa, now we're simulcasted. The show must mean something if it's also on television. And it broadened our audience. There were people, we were on the, we started through, it was uh, this February, it's three years we've been on Yes, right? So you got to go back to that 2000, February of 2014. There were people that watched on Yes who didn't know Michael had a show. I mean, that's the kind of monster that FAN is and how hard it is to kind of get people to recognize. So I really thought the show really started to blossom when we two years prior to that when we went on an FM and had a better signal and then really exploded once we went on yes now you also do other stuff for WPN like you do the pre and post for the Jets yes so talk about 
Um, talk about your favorite moments of doing that. Well, the best was in 09 and 2010 when they went to the championship games because we don't get to travel usually. And we'll, a couple of them will make trips to New England, trips to Baltimore, close trips, but usually we're just back in the studio for the road games. So in 2009, we went, you know, we, we didn't go to all the games, but we went to the championship game in Indianapolis. And in 2010, we went to New England, we went to Pittsburgh. So that's when you really feel a part of it. You know, people ask me, you grew up a Giant fan and you do the Jets, how, how do you stay a Giant fan? But well, you're doing the Rangers, but you're not the, a, a Devil fan anymore. I think the difference is when you're traveling with a team, when you're calling games, when you're, when you're away from the home base, then you really feel like you're part of the team. So I feel, I, I never really feel like I'm part of the Jets team doing the pre and post, but in those two years, traveling, being at the championship games in Indianapolis, Pittsburgh, to, and then in 2010, we were in, um, we were in New, uh, Indianapolis, we were in New England, we were in Pittsburgh, so all three of the playoff games, we were physically in the building, then you feel like you're part of the team, and that's, that's the best experience for any announcer is to, to, to really feel like you're a part of the team. Would you feel even more part of the team if maybe there was an opportunity for you to fill in for Bob Shoes and if he had some sort of conflict oh, yeah. of influence in ESPN? Yeah, I think so because, you know, the thing is, like, people ask, like, how do you give up, like, being a Devil fan? Well, just you get older and then, you know, I'm invested in the Rangers. This is their 61st game today, and I've called 32 of them, right? I've called 208 games over the last nine years. And when, when I'm calling a game... I want the team I'm calling for to win. I mean, who, who would, you know, why would you ever want to call a game for a team to lose? So you do enough of them, then you, you become invested in wanting them to win. Like, people are, how difficult is it for you to call a Ranger-Devil game? It's not difficult at all. Um, and it also came to a head for me in 2012 when they played in the conference final. You know, I'm down ice level where Henrique scored the goal to put the Devils in the Stanley Cup final. So a part of me is like, oh, my, my team I grew up with is going to the Stanley Cup final. But the team I work for is out which means we're not going to talk much hockey on the Michael K. Show. Um, the TV stations aren't going to start calling me to do interviews. Uh, I'm not going to continue to make money working for the TV. You know, so then you just become like, uh, how happy should I be? I mean, maybe it would be better if the Rangers won, forced the Game 7, and, and, and won the Cup. And then two years later, I'm calling Game 1 of the Stanley Cup Final because Doc, uh, father-in-law, passed away, so Kenny had to do TV. I'm in Los Angeles calling Game 1 of the Stanley Cup Final. The Devils couldn't give me that opportunity. The Rangers did. So doesn't it make sense to then root for that team? So that's how it ends up uh, coming together. Well, you kind of answered a little bit of my next question. I was going to talk about uh, when did you first get the opportunity to call a Rangers game on radio, and then what are your favorite? What has been your favorite moments? Well, um, they asked me to audition at the start of the 08-09 season because Bob O'Shusen was one of the primary backups got um, hired by ESPN to do college football and basketball, so he couldn't do it. So somebody get recommended, since Don's doing the pre and post, let's give him a shot. I auditioned with Pete Stemkowski. I guess they liked it. My first game ended up being one of the first games of the season in Philadelphia against the Flyers. So that first one was a thrill. And never knowing if I was going to get a chance to do another one, and you fast forward and 200-plus games later. Um, the highlight, obviously game one, Stanley Cup final, having it go to overtime, Huge game, so much fun. Uh, the game earlier this year against Columbus when they came back from 4-1 down and the Grabner goal and Dave screaming and that goal kind of went viral. Um, the, 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 that's a game that jumps out at me. The first ever playoff game I called was a Ranger Capital game at the Garden. Dubinsky scored with like a minute to go in the game. So those are the ones that I remember the most because 
they were high-profile games and they were close games where you really have to be on top of the call and you don't want to screw it up, and, and that, that's, when it's so, that's when it's so much fun. What do you think is the biggest difference between doing a radio show and calling play-by-play in terms of hockey? Oh, just like calling the game as far as hosting a show, like the yeah, like like hosting a radio show and then like doing play by play. Well, the play by play is fun because let's face it, we're all in this business because we didn't get a chance to play. I can't speak for you, but I think all of us grew up hoping that we'd become a professional athlete, and we kind of settle for this because we weren't good enough to keep us close to the sports we love without having to because we couldn't play it. So, play by play is the closest to playing, right? I mean, it's you're actually doing your job during the game and you 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 prepare for the game the same way you come to the morning skate you you announce during the game after the game you get on the bus and go to the airport and you fly home or whatever where the michael k show or even a pre and post game it's always preview and review that's what it is it's let's preview the day or recap what happened the night before play by play is the only thing that it's done in real time so that's the biggest difference is is i i can only prepare so much for this I can give you the, the, the statistics, and I can have all the numbers memorized, but I can't tell you what's going to happen. I can't prepare for how I'm going to react to a Palmieri breakaway and a Zabanajad goal. But on the Michael K. show, I can pretty much script out the show 90% of it. Sometimes things will happen, something will break during the day, and but for the most part, there's only so much planning you can do. you got to be on your toes. That's why it's so much more fun. Now I have a. This is a hockey question I really have. Uh, you talked about. I think you talked about it on the Friday show. Um, I'm not a big fan. I'm not big. I'm like you. I'm not really big fan of the shootout. Right. My thing is, I have my idea would be like, why don't they play maybe at least another period of overtime, then the shootout? I feel like five minutes. Uh, what's the extra five minutes? I mean, it's not. I know there's travel issues and all that, but well, that's I, it. I mean, that's really comes down to is is that now if you wanted to like actually have another intermission, Zamboni the mm-hmm. ice, play another 20 minutes, that takes up a lot of time. Look at the Rangers are playing a game tomorrow. Um, look at what happened to Washington last night. They played in Washington at seven o'clock, and then they flew to Nashville for a four o'clock local time game. So imagine if they played a whole, you know, another period. That's another 45 minutes of hockey. I mean, that's a well, – in oh, these well, condensed I mean, schedule, three games in four nights, that's tough, I yeah. think, to do to teams. I guess I meant, like, maybe another five minutes of five on – That I, mean, three I or three or three. Well, that, that I agree with yeah. because it wouldn't even last that long. Like, what I suggest that they do, they come out on the ice after regulation, they, they shovel the ice, right, and then they play five minutes. Now – their concern is if they play 10 minutes, the ice might not be able to take it because they didn't get a chance to Zamboni after regulation. But if you played five minutes and just ended it at five minutes, had them come and scrape the ice again with the shovels and play an additional five, I would rather see that. I think you keep the shootout, but you would vastly reduce the shootouts because I think over 10 minutes of three-on-three, three, somebody's going to score a goal. I would like them to address that if they can make it work with some of the buildings like Brooklyn where the ice is a problem. What about the overtime loss point? Because uh, there's a lot of talk about, like, maybe that's not really, I guess maybe it's not really, eh, it's not really yeah. the best solution. Maybe make, maybe you make a shootout win one, and then... I guess, but here's the problem I have with, right now we are defining win, uh, losses. Did you lose in regulation? Did you lose in a shootout? You get a point for losing in a shootout or overtime, you get none for regulation. By... 
by grading wins, now you're just grading wins, where a win is worth two or it's worth three. Some people have suggested if you win a regulation, it's three, and if you win in overtime in the shootout, it's two. So really not that much of a difference. Plus, the argument that I have there is if the worst team in the like the, the Avalanche are the worst team in the league, right? Mm-hmm. So they come to Madison Square Garden, Rangers are one of the best teams in the league, beat them, then that's only worth, that, that's worth two points. Mm-hmm. And that, that's an easy win for them. But if the Avalanche ever came to the Garden and won in overtime of the shootout, they'd only get one point? I mean, is I mean it, only in shootout. I mean, like, shootout, you only get one point, but in overtime, you still get two. Right, but even like the shootout, so they only get one point when just beating the Rangers in any way, shape, or form. I hear what you're saying, you only get the one point. But then you're giving the team that doesn't win the shootout nothing. Yeah. Is that fair? Yeah. They just played 65 minutes of hockey, even, and now they're going to get nothing, and then they're going to have a... Then you're gonna have a skills competition to determine who gets the one point. So I, I don't like that either. I, I, I and I don't like the three points either because then that compromises the way you look at teams. Like if for three points for a win, there might be a team that you know has 170 points at the end of the year from a historic standpoint. Yeah, that doesn't seem very fair. I guess my last question would be: How do you like to be remembered when it's all said and done in terms of your career? <laughs> Just to somebody that was passionate. The best compliment that I can ever get is that they love listening to me because of my passion, that I I haven't lost my fandom, that people get excited when they hear me call a game or when I get go on a rant on the Michael K show. I mean, the fact that I can be entertaining and that people enjoy my work, I don't want to ever be looked upon as a guy that they're bored with listening to. So um, I made my mistakes, they may not agree with my point, but if they may say, boy, I, I love Don, he was really passionate about what he did, that's like the best compliment I can get. All right. That's it's, that was Don LaGreca here at the broadcast for the Broadcast Journal here at the Pioneer Center. I hope we listen for another edition of the Broadcast Journal. Thanks, buddy. I hope that worked out. Cool. Good job.